All right, let's take the Word of God together again and go to Romans 16 this morning. Romans 16. And we're going to continue and conclude today the second part of a message I began last week simply entitled, Brethren in Christ. Brethren in Christ. The term brethren is a term of not only endearment, but it is a term of love. It is a term of devotion. It's a term of fellowship. And it's also a term of communion. Uh, We're going to hear that word communion often today. Uh, During our second service, we will be observing the Lord's table together and considering that subject of communion, what that means. But as we look at Romans 16, verses 12 through 16 this morning, we'll pick up where we left off. And I began looking at verse number 12 of Romans 16 with this continuing list of names that the Apostle Paul recognizes for their service. Uh, Their service was to Paul, yes, but their service was primarily to God. And all service that we render to one another is a service unto God. But we learned something last week about believers. Uh, We learned that believers are to be more to one another than just simply people who share a common doctrine, which we at this church do. We share a common doctrine and names on a membership role. In other words, to be brethren in Christ is more than just sharing common doctrine and being on a membership role. Now, those things are important. But brethren in Christ, we need to remember, we are members of the family of God. We have been adopted into the family of God. We are forever His children. And because we are in the same family, we are to have a genuine love for one another. Genuine love is hard to find. Genuine love is not defined by even what we see in our normal human relationships. If I was to tell you today that genuinely love one another, love the brethren as you love each other in the world, uh, you would find that that is a different type of love. This type of brethren in Christ that Paul's talking about is a love that is only given through and by the Holy Spirit of God. In other words, Paul is telling us to love one another with something that goes beyond the possibility of natural man. Natural man in his sinful state cannot love the way Paul encourages us to love one another and the way he speaks of these other brethren in Christ. It would be accurate for us to say, if we don't know that type of love, if we as a church and as individuals don't understand what that love means, we might have to ask ourselves a question, I myself might be a stranger to God's love. In other words, I may not even know what God's love is. It's interesting that in 1 John 3, verses 14 through 18, we're going to get to our text in just a moment, but here's what John writes in that text, 1 John 3, verses 14, or in that text, he says, this is my commandment, that ye love one another as I have loved you. And by this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if ye love one another. The phrase there, as I have loved you, tells us that Christ is telling us to love one another in a way that only people in Christ can love. Now, Paul had been mentioning these names. He's not mentioning them as just people he was familiar with. 
Now, no doubt these were all members and brethren in various churches and in various parts of the world. But Paul is declaring them all brethren in Christ. We are brethren in Christ in this local church, but we're also brethren in Christ in the church universal, which means all that are in Christ are our brethren. Brethren that stretch thousands of miles. But Paul is commending them for their help. Love does that. Love commends. Love acknowledges. But we notice that Paul not only thanked them for helping him, he thanked them for serving the Lord and for the cause of Christ. Our service to Christ is the motivating factor. Why we do what we do is not so that we will gain the attention and the applause of men, but that we would set forth the cause of Christ. That's what Paul's idea is here. That's what he's preaching on. Now, we left, this, left with this last week, and I did not expound it as much as I'd like to. But we begin that Paul, in verse number 12, he mentions three individuals. And I mentioned to you that these were three women. And we talked a lot last week about the importance of how Paul is commending women in the work and women in the work of the gospel. Notice he says in verse number 12, he says, Salute Tryphena and Tryphosa who labor in the Lord. Salute the beloved Persis which labored much in the Lord. These were women that we are told by the Apostle Paul himself says they labored much in the Lord or they labored in the Lord. Now we know biblically speaking, the Bible excludes women in the particular office of pastor. They're not to serve in that capacity, but they're not excluded from laboring in the gospel. Again, that's not an insult. That is, that is the way God has established it. They are permitted to labor. But Paul says these women, their labors ought to be blessed and it ought to be recognized because they have served the cause of Christ well. These women who labor in the Lord. He refers to Persis as beloved Persis, which labored much in the Lord. Here's another woman who was employed in the service of the gospel. Now, for some reason, Paul particularly distinguishes her as laboring much in the Lord. Again, as we established this fact last week, it doesn't mean that she was better than Tryphena or Tryphosa or anyone else. It just Paul has peculiar singled her out and said she's labored much. Now, we all know, even in a church our size, and we've got some of our family away from us today, in a church our size, there are different levels of activity that everyone is going to do. We're not all called to do exactly the same thing. And yet, Paul names her. He calls her by name. Listen, any deed that is done for the cause of Christ, that's done according to his word, is a good deed. It is a good work. It is good service. And again, these women, their deeds are being recognized, and these are not the only women. We saw a couple last week that were also mentioned here. In verse number 13, his list of these commendations goes on, and he mentions a name, a name by the name of Rufus. He says, salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and notice this, and his mother and mine. Uh, that is a peculiar statement. Now, we know that the phrase chosen of God or chosen in the Lord, all believers are chosen 
by God. That is the doctrine of election. However, this is going a little bit further in saying he was, he was chosen in the service that God gave him. We understand that Rufus here is being distinguished as a chosen vessel. So he must have demonstrated some evidence that he was indeed in Christ. That's why he's being recognized. That's why Paul says Rufus chosen in the Lord. Again, it's not specific that he's saying his chosen here is his election. He's saying he gave evidence of his election. He gave evidence that he was in Christ. We understand, and as we've already read and sung about this morning, our salvation is not based upon the deeds that we do. Paul is not saying Rufus is in Christ because he did good deeds. He is saying he is in Christ because he was chosen in Christ. Every believer is, we understand biblically, the choice of the Lord. Now, before we move on, let's look at a couple of verses that make mention of this. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 2. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse number 2, as the Apostle Peter was writing to the scattered Jewish nation uh, throughout the various regions, he begins the letter with a salutation, and he uses the term in which Paul is referencing being chosen in the Lord. Verse 2 says, "...elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father." through sanctification of the Spirit, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. What was Peter saying? Peter saying that this election, we know what it's according to. It's according to the foreknowledge of God through sanctification, don't leave these steps out, unto obedience. All of these things, they're showing us that there's something that takes place to those that are chosen in the Lord. You're there in 1 Peter. Uh, go over to 1 Peter uh, chapter uh, 2, just down a, a couple of uh, verses. Or 2 Peter, I'm sorry. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 5. 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. No, no, go back. 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. 2 <laughs> Peter 1. The Bible tells us, wherefore, or whereby, verse 4, are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge temperance and to temperance patience and to patience godliness and to godliness brotherly kindness and to brotherly kindness, there's our word, charity or love. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore the rather brethren give diligence to make your calling and election sure. For if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
We read that extended passage because we see here that, that Paul, as he's writing and using the expression, this chosen in the Lord, shows that every believer is indeed chosen in Christ and they will show evidence of that choice. Now, that's what these servants that Paul is recognizing, they are all demonstrating the fact, but Paul singles out Rufus and says, this one is chosen in the Lord. Now, who is this man by the name of Rufus? Uh, this man has been the point of uh, numerous controversies. Commentators uh, are in disagreement as to what, who this man is. But we are told about a man by the name of Rufus who is in Mark chapter number 15. So if you'll turn there, Mark 15, and let's, let's read about this man, Rufus, and spend just a little bit of time uh, considering this. Mark chapter 15, verse number 21. We, we are familiar with the main character in this verse. We probably know the story, but there's a reference made to two other people. Of course, this is the crucifixion of our Lord. And as Jesus is going towards Golgotha's hill, the Bible tells us in verse 21 of Mark 15, and they compel one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by, coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. Now, there is some disagreement as to whether or not this is the same Rufus. I, through my study, am taking the position that this is the same individual. That this man by the name of Rufus is the son of Simon, the Cyrenian, who was called out of the crowd to bear the cross of the Lord when he could no longer carry that cross. And as we think about this for just a moment, and we think about the ramifications of that, here is this man by the name of Simon who was compelled to bear the cross of the Lord, and he's declared also, and it should not just be a side note, it's mentioned that he's the father of Alexander and Rufus. So here we understand that this, these two individuals, Alexander and Rufus, as Mark wrote his gospel, these men must have been well-known among believers. In other words, if the names Alexander and Rufus were mentioned, people heard it. People knew who these men were. Now, what makes what Paul says in our passage even more uh, enlightening when Paul salutes Rufus, he also acknowledges Rufus's mother. Now, he doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't mention Simon, but he mentions Rufus's mother. Now, again, we're not going to speculate on why Paul doesn't mention Simon. And that's one of the reasons that there has been some discrepancy between some commentators as to whether or not this is the same Rufus. But here's, as I study, and here's what I'm considering and thinking about, that if this indeed is the same Rufus, and now Paul makes mention of not just Rufus, but his mother, and he also refers to Rufus's mother as his own. This is not a separate, he's not saying, and my own mother. He's saying, the mother of Rufus was so kind to me that I consider her like my own mother. Now, Rufus's mother is not given a name. Remember we told you about uh, some names are not given. Here's an example of a woman who Paul commends, and yet we don't really know what her name is. Now, we could go in through and study and find out who was Rufus's or who was Simon's wife. 
But what we see happening here is we see the word mother seems to be used to signify the goodness of Rufus's mother, not only to him, but also to Paul. The apostle calls her his own mother. Now, he's not saying she's my biological mother. He is saying, I am grateful and acknowledge her because of her motherly attentions to me. In other words, what she did unto me was for Christ's sake. What she did unto me was for the cause of Christ. She bore service to the servants of God. Now, some have taken the position of if this was Simon's, if this was Simon's son, again, why is he not mentioned? But let's think about this for a moment. Here, Rufus is acknowledged. His mother is acknowledged. It's a high distinguishment there. Here is this woman who seems insignificant, but Paul, in all of his ministry, singles out a mother who is not named, but says she ought to be thanked. We think about the realities of our service to Christ. And we think about these women, like Rufus's mother, who served with nobody knowing their name. Folks, I can't stress to you how important this is for all of us. We don't serve so that people know our name. We don't preach so that people know our name. We don't even proclaim the gospel so that people will necessarily know our church. We do these things that they may know Him, that they may know Christ. We're not doing this so that our name becomes famous. Now again, you might say, preacher, I think you're embellishing, you're speculating a little bit. Maybe I am, but I still say Paul acknowledges and she's a no name, and yet here we are talking about her today. What a devotion she must have shown. Not to Paul, per se, but to Christ. This is affectionate. This man who was labeled by many, Paul, who's been labeled as crude and a, a man who just didn't seem to have much by those who, who saw him in their day. But Paul demonstrates an affection and a devotion and a love towards people that ought to serve as a lesson to you and I. The Apostle Paul was probably the greatest gospel preacher there ever was, but he was also probably the most loving man you would ever have met. How can we proclaim such a gospel and yet be loving? That's exactly the point. A gospel that does not proclaim, is not proclaimed through love is not the gospel at all. Now understand something. The gospel is going to be perceived, the important emphasis on the word perceived, as hateful. Anytime the true gospel is preached, you can mark it down. Somebody will say that is hateful. It's always going to be that way. But to those who love the Lord, those who are converted, those who are brought in through faith, they will say that is the most loving thing I've ever heard. Grace is the most loving word you'll ever hear if you're in God and you're in Christ. Grace is hated by the lost. Grace is hated by those outside of Christ. But yet, Paul says, I commend Rufus and I commend his mother and I commend her even as if she was my own mother. Verses 14 and 15 is a list of names just right after another. Paul says, salute Asyncritus, 
Philagon, Hermas, Petrobus, Hermas, and the brethren which are with them. Salute Philagogus and Julia, Nerus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints which are with him. It's a similar expression in both verses. And the brethren which are with them, and the saints which are with him. Here, Paul numbers or gives the names of a number of brethren who are selected without any distinction at all. They're not said they labored much. They're not called beloved. Paul just says salute them. The word salute means just to acknowledge them. Give them an acknowledgement for their service. The mark of this brotherly love and attention that Paul is showing here is he's naming not only them, but he mentions the brethren which were with them. Here's a bunch of other no-name servants. And he says they all should be saluted. You don't even know who they are, but they're with these people that I'm mentioning to you. It seems strange to us how Paul, through this entire, almost this entire chapter, is taken up to give acknowledgement to people's names, yet it's inspired Scripture. That means it's supposed to be there. That means God wanted it there and God left it there so that you and I might learn something and that we may know God even in a greater way. The Lord's people may not be equally singled out. I can guarantee you this. Some of the greatest, let me rephrase that, some of the most well-known servants of God were not known until long after they died. And some are still not known today. Some of the people who've made the greatest impact for Christ are not people who you read about. They, haven't, they didn't write commentaries. And in our day and age today, some of, the, some of the preachers and some of the servants of God having the greatest impact don't have YouTube channels and they don't do Facebook Live and they don't do Twitter Live. You don't know who they are, but they are serving for the cause of Christ. The reality of what we're talking about this morning is even in our own attitudes about why do we serve God? Would you still serve Christ if nobody knew your name? Would you still serve Christ if nobody ever acknowledged you? What if you served your whole life? What if a, a preacher served his whole life and nobody ever told that preacher, listen, that was a good sermon. Then you keep on serving Christ because you're not doing it to make a name for yourself. You're doing it so that his name might be exalted. Paul's intent here is not so that we would make a statue to him or a statue to these people. He's just saying, here are people who were serving the cause of Christ, men and women alike. They are all worthy of our attention. Listen, a church, no matter what size it is, will always contain some who are more well-known than others but if they're all believers, even if they go unnoticed, they are still brethren in Christ. I can't emphasize enough how much there should be an emphasis on the title of brethren in Christ. Because that's the way God intended for it to be. Brethren. The brethren which are with them. These fellow believers, no doubt, had families as well. I believe Paul didn't even know who they were, and yet he still acknowledges them. He says, if you are with them, I acknowledge you also. There were people Paul was giving thanks for the cause of Christ who he didn't even know, and that's what we do today. Thank God for anybody who is 
proclaiming the cause of Christ, even if you don't know their name. When you go to the Lord in prayer and thank God for certain people in your life, thank God for the people you don't know. Thank God for the unknown servants who are serving in in our state and in our country and in the world and say, I'm thankful for them because they they are proclaiming the same Christ we're proclaiming. That's the beauty of the gospel. The true gospel is the same here as it is in China. It's not, it's not adapted to the culture. It's not adapted to the people. It's the same gospel being proclaimed, yes, probably in a different language, but it's the same gospel. It seems strange, again, that God preserved in his word names of people you and I have never personally met. Why did he do it? It edifies us. What's the, what's the main purpose that we come together as a church, a church family of believers, if we're all truly in Christ, why do we gather on Sundays and Wednesdays and whatever else the doors are? Why do we do that? If we're indeed saved, it's to be a reminder about the gospel, but it's also for edification and for instruction. Sadly, today, many things are trying to replace the regular church meeting. I can get my edification and my instruction on the internet. It's not the same. You are never going to get the same edification from people that you don't know, but you're going to be edified together. That's part of why we gather. We gather to learn the word of God, to be reminded and to worship and to praise the Lord and to pray unto him. But this does show us the value of the inspiration of scripture. If these writings were just a book, if this was just a book at the local Christian bookstore written by a person, there really would not be anything to gain, but maybe a little bit, you might be a little bit inspired by their story. But the Apostle Paul wrote this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which means God put his finger on this and said, I want you to know about this. Books are grand, books are good, but don't ever let them replace the word of God. This is the only inspired book. This is the only book that holds absolute truth. And again, the world will dispute you with that, but it is the only thing that holds absolute truth. So Paul writes, it edifies us. It reminds us of what it is to be brethren in Christ. And then notice how this section ends. Salute one another with a holy kiss. The churches of Christ salute you. At first glance, we look at this and we think about the salutations and the greetings that Paul was sending to the brethren. And now Paul moves from the salutation to the ending. And he says, here's how I end this particular section. He says, salute one another. I've given you all of these names. And again, he's writing to the church at Rome, which consisted of Jews and Gentiles. Remember from our study, there was some division in them. And Paul's going to deal with that next week because he's going to come right out and say this, avoid them, which caused division. But he says, those of you who are united in Christ, those of you who are in Christ together, the brethren in Christ, salute one another with a holy kiss. He calls it this holy kiss as distinguished from what our definition of what we think of in our society as a kiss It is a kiss that doesn't just merely express a common affection, but it expresses the ultimate sign or the ultimate picture of fellowship and communion and love. The emphasis is not on the what, 
the kiss. The emphasis is on the spirit in which it's being offered, the attitude. Christians should have a relationship with one another that is defined by this, what he says is a holy kiss. Now, there are people who ridicule this, and they ridicule it for the reason, and and here's why. Some of this is cultural, okay? This doesn't mean that as a church today, during our fellowship time, I'm not trying to be irreverent, okay? So please just bear with me, that all of a sudden we should start kissing each other. That's not what I'm saying. It's culture. It is a sign of togetherness. It's a sign of communion. When I go into another body of believers who, is in, who are in Christ, when I extend my hand to them and I accept them and acknowledge them as my brother or sister, that's the same as greeting with a holy kiss. I am saying you are my brother and you are my sister in Christ. Not everybody in the world can be called your brother and sister in Christ. Only those who are in Christ can be our brethren. But the emphasis here is that Paul used this terminology on many occasions. Paul used it, and Peter actually used it. I want to look at a couple of those. 1 Corinthians 16, go to verses 19 through 24. 1 Corinthians 16, verses 19 through 24. Paul, in a very similar fashion, writing to the church at Corinth, begins this salutation, and ends with a similar ending. He says in verse 19 of 1 Corinthians 16, the churches of Asia salute you. Aquila and Priscilla salute you much in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you. Greet ye one another with a holy kiss. The salutation of me, Paul, with mine own hand. If any man love not the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be anathema maranatha. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. There's that phrase again. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Again, you have fellowship. You have a common doctrine. You have a a unity. But you also are to have a love for one another that is unlike anything you know. And then over in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, find 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and look at verses 23 through 28. Again, this is part of the ending of a letter. 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 23. Paul writes, And the very God of peace sanctify you wholly, and I pray, God, your whole spirit and soul and body be preserved blameless unto the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he that calleth you, who also will do it. Brethren, pray for us. Greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. I charge you by the Lord that this epistle be read unto all the holy brethren. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. Notice in this account, Paul says, greet all the brethren with a holy kiss. In our Western civilization, again, the shake of the hand or whatever the common acknowledgement of that culture is, is what he is saying. 
There are parts of the world that if you go and you try to shake hands with the brethren, they will not touch your hand, but they will kiss your face. But what they are doing may be unusual to you, but what they're doing, they are acknowledging you are my brother or my sister in Christ. And that, my friends, is a beautiful thing. Even though culturally, it may be a little different to us. Again, it's not about the mechanics of it. It is about what Paul was saying is the attitude and what is the, the qualifications of that. And then I want you to see Peter's account of this. 1 Peter chapter 5. Go to 1 Peter again, if you would, chapter number 5. And again, this is, this is just, I think it's so important to see the, the context in which this is given. 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 and 14. Again, notice Paul is making mention of names again. Verse 12 of 1 Peter 5, by Silvanus, a faithful brother unto you, as I suppose. I have written briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God wherein ye stand. The church that is in ba at Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth Marcus, my son. Let me just stop there. Most of you have no idea who Marcus is. It's another name mentioned. It's mentioned my son, like Paul mentioned the name Timothy. Timothy wasn't Paul's blood son. Marcus is another man that he, Marcus doesn't have a book of the Bible written by him, does it? Or written to him? Here's Marcus. Greet ye one another with a kiss of charity. Peace be with you all that are in Christ Jesus. Amen. Notice again, Paul says, this is the proper way to greet those who are brethren in Christ. Paul ends our section for today by saying the churches of Christ salute you. Not only did individuals send greetings to other churches or greetings to other individuals, but let me, let me challenge us with something. Whole churches writ, wrote salutations and greetings to entire other churches. Can you imagine if all the churches who are bound and in Christ by the true grace of God would do everything we could to actually encourage other believers to stand in the truth? If we got our eyes off of ourselves and saying, here's what I want, here's what I need. What if we said as a church, listen, we're not the only church that's proclaiming the true gospel. What if we decide as a church to try to encourage other churches? That's what Paul is talking about here. Churches encouraging other churches. Oh, we have this problem though. That church is not just like us. That church doesn't do its services just like we do. That church is a little bit different. I have news for you. Every congregation is a little bit different. But yet Paul says if they're brethren in Christ, and again, that's the key. Brethren in Christ will give evidence that they're brethren in Christ. It's not just a profession of faith. Folks, listen, our salvation is more than just us saying it. There is evidence that you are in Christ. Anybody can say, I'm a believer. Anyone can say, I'm saved. But only brethren in Christ will show evidence of it. 
There will be evidence in your life. And one of the things we quickly overlook is how we love the brethren. If you have no love for the brethren, even John wrote, that's the greatest evidence that you have eternal life is that you love the brethren. That's greater evidence than what work you do in the church. You could be on the list of all the things that the church needs. And if you have hate for your brother or your sister, you're a stranger to the love of God. Now that's hard to hear. But you know what happens? You realize you're not serving to get God's approval. You're serving God to proclaim the name of Christ. It's humble. It's, it's humility. And as we finish this and, and Paul brings us to this conclusion, it's very simple. We ought to, as brethren in Christ, we ought to love one another. We ought to pray for one another. We ought to have the names of each other written on our hearts to say, listen, these are my brothers and sisters. To love one another is to not be so anxious to please ourselves, but to please our brothers and sisters. Folks, we all need help in this. It is really difficult to get yourself and ourselves out of the way. We love ourselves deeply. And it's difficult for us to say, I'm going to lower myself in order that my brother or sister in Christ might be lifted up, not in pride, but that I may make their well-being and their good one of my goals. Not just to make them important, but that the cause of Christ might move forward. We act lovingly. We act courteously. There isn't enough affection there isn't enough good words we could say to one another that would be too much. But remember, we do all this so that Christ's name will be exalted, not so that we make a name for ourselves. These brethren in Christ, I hope we have learned from them. Next week, we're going to deal with the subject of division. And Paul is very, very dogmatic about this. He says to avoid them which cause division and offenses contrary to doctrine. All of this can be said, but if your doctrine is wrong, then the love cannot be right either. You cannot love each other the right way if our doctrine is wrong. And that's what Paul is going to talk about with us next week. Let's go ahead and stand and we'll pray. And then we're going to finish with a hymn this morning. And that hymn is on page 119. There is a higher throne. But as you're standing, go ahead and take your songbook, find that page, and we'll pray, and then we'll sing that as our close this morning.